Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. The book of Colossians in the New Testament. All right, I want to give to you uh, an idea of, uh, of the focus by asking you this simple question. When you think of the word hope, what do you think it means? Do you, do you think it means that, well, I really wish something would happen, or I really wish this would work out the way I want, but I'm certainly nowhere near positively sure. That's one definition of hope. Or are you confident in your expectation? You know for sure that what you want to happen is actually going to happen. Now, I like to view it this way. You know, in the Bible study on Wednesday night, we've been talking about God's creation, and we've been looking at, uh, we've been looking at uh, summer, winter, fall, and spring. Not in that order, right? And uh, <clears throat> look at it this way. If hope for you is a confident expectation, then that means that you are positively sure that when you go to bed tonight and wake up in the morning, that the sun is going to rise. You have no question about that whatsoever. You know for sure it's going to happen. But you'd be a little less sure of yourself if you said, I know there's not going to be a cloud in the sky at all in the morning. See the difference between the two hopes? You see, when I say to you, spring is coming, you are confidently assured, are aware of the fact that, yes, I expect it, I know it's going to happen. Spring is coming. But if I say to you that it's going to be six more weeks before that happens, you're not so sure. You certainly wouldn't say, I'm positive about that. So in the book of Colossians, which is a twin epistle to Ephesians, if you've read the book of Ephesians and you're reading Colossians this week, you're going to say this many, many times. You're going to say, Paul is saying the very same thing in Colossians that he just said in Ephesians. That's why they're called twin epistles, written to two different cities, but the themes are the same. Without spending any time doing that, let's get right into the points that I want to make for you today. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And we do it since we heard of your faith. Now, your faith has resulted in love, in verse 4, for all the saints. But what is the foundation of the faith in the first place? 
verse 4, or the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And it's the hope that's laid up for you in heaven that gives you the faith and gives you the love. And I love these passages of Scripture where the Apostle Paul talks about the three greatest words, faith, hope, and love. Think about it when you heard the gospel for the very first time. What did the, what did the person share with you when he shared the gospel with you the first time? Did he merely say, have faith in Jesus? No, because you would have said, why should I have faith in Jesus? Because he is willing to do this. He's willing to forgive you of your sin. He's willing to promise you eternal life. He's willing to bless you with spiritual blessings from this moment forward. And it's the hope. That Jesus is going to do what he says he does that works on your faith. So principle number one is hope is stored up for you in heaven. And if you fits you, then take it and rejoice. Hope is laid up for you in heaven. Hope of what? Well, if I go to 1 Peter, and Peter talks about a living hope that we have, Peter says we have a living hope and an inheritance that God has planned for us. I would just simply, I just like the three words that we have hope in a glorious eternity. Now, you can go through the whole Bible, and you can come up with a whole list of wonderful things that God has stored up for us in heaven. He has stored up for us in heaven a, uh, a mansion. He has stored up in us in heaven. He has stored up the, the most valuable real estate in the universe where we can live because he's going to bring heaven down to earth, somehow combine the earth in a new heaven and a new earth, and the inheritance we will have is the property that God has planned for us when he redoes the earth back to its original pristine condition. And proves it immensely. He promises other things. He promises rewards for us. For our labor. But these are the things that we need to see. When we talk about hope being stored up in heaven for us. Now go to chapter 1 verses 9 and following. Paul says since we heard of your faith we really pray. And we pray hard. And in verse 9 he says since the day we heard of it. We pray really hard that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in verse 9, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you can walk worthy of the Lord. And then he goes into verse 12, and he says, We're giving thanks to the Father, because the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So the second principle is, the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the what? The inheritance, everybody together, the inheritance of the saints. Now, if I were to describe for you how the believers in that day 
especially in the Old Testament, would have looked at this, I would ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for one simple illustration. And that's the illustration of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and following. Now, if you have it and you're reading along with me, Abraham obeyed God, and when he was called to leave his hometown and cross the desert to come to the uh, western section of the Middle East by the Mediterranean Sea called Canaan, when he was called to do that, the Bible said he did it by faith because God had promised him an inheritance. And so he looked for it, he hoped for it, and the Bible even says that he went beyond that physical inheritance because he looked for something that was even better than Canaan. He looked for the heavenly city. Now, there's a guy who was pretty spiritual in his understanding of, of hope. There's a guy who would get the opportunity to have the best of both worlds. He was promised real estate here on this earth and promised a heavenly home in the heavens. Now, what I want you to think about here is that God has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. And all that means and all that, all that uh, goes along with that. He's qualified us. It's kind of like if I'm a, a son and I have parents, I am qualified to receive from my parents what a son normally gets. Because I'm a son. So whatever the parents want to give me, if, I'm, if I have a certain job and uh, it takes a certain skill and um, you ask me whether I can do the job and I say to you, well, I don't know if I'm qualified or not, it would help if I had some certificate that proved that I could. You see, see what I'm saying here? If I want to enjoy a piece of property, build a house on it, I'm qualified to do it if I have a deed. See the point? And that's, the, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. God has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. And you know, and you and I both know how he has qualified us to do that. You and I know that we are qualified through the work of Christ on the cross. There's no other way that we're qualified for that. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, what? Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Point number three, chapter 1, verses 19 and following. 
chapter 19, uh, 1, 19 and following. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus, that would be Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And that by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether on the earth, whether in heaven, whether, and, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, you and I who once were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works, God has reconciled. So that we can be presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. But look at verse 23. I don't like these verses in the Bible. They're there from time to time. And the Bible says, all that He says can be true of me. Verse 23, if, if I continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and am not moved away from the what? The hope of the gospel. Now, point number three is you and I can be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, I'm not even going to get into the issue of how far. All right? That's just not what the Apostle Paul is all about in the book of Colossians at this point. But the fact of the matter is that we can move, we've moved away from the hope of the gospel so that that hope doesn't seem to be there any longer. And I ask the question, how can we be moved away from the hope of the gospel? Now, let me say at the outset, as I finish this up for you, because I'm going to give four ways here that Colossians tells us. But if your hope in the definition that I gave you earlier is that, well, I really hope it'll work out. I don't know for sure whether it will, but I really hope so. I hope my plans will be okay. Then you need to pay real close attention to what we're going to say next. However, if your hope is a certain expectation. You know for sure that what God has promised He's going to do, that you know for sure that um, you have a hope stored up in heaven, that you know for sure that the Father has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance, then rejoice. What Paul does here now is he gives to us ways that we can be moved away from the hope of the gospel. But the very first thing he says to us is a positive thing. Look at chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. Now, without getting into the details of this passage of Scripture, Paul is telling you what his part in the gospel is. And he says, the interesting thing about my part is that this whole idea of the gospel being preached is a mystery to all of us. A mystery that God has unraveled for us in this day and age in which we live. But for the most part, before Jesus came, it was a mystery that was hard to understand. Now, I don't know how to describe this, but let me give you a little piece of that. When it, go, go with me back to the book of Psalms chapter 16, Psalm 16, just, just for a moment here. 
And I want you to try to put yourself into this psalmist's place. All right? So if you have a heading on that psalm, it's going to say something like the hope of the faithful and the Messiah's victory. But in Psalm 16, I want you to notice in verse 5 where the psalmist says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Verse 9. We can jump down to verse 9. We don't need 7 and 8 at this point. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now, that's a certain expectation. I know when I die, I'm not going to stay dead. However, other people would look at that and say, well, I don't know how you can be so sure of that. I was always taught once you're dead, you're dead. You see the point. And then he adds this mysterious this mysterious sentence. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. See, here's the mystery that's identified in the Old Testament, but not explained. And the next sentence is all about Jesus. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So when Jesus comes and everybody gets to see Jesus who came and He died on the cross, and he rose again. The mystery now is being solved right before our very eyes. And so here's what the Apostle Paul, I say that to you because here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 17. To the Gentiles who have seen the mystery of God right before their very eyes, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, among the Gentiles, which is, and what is the mystery? Everybody together. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I'm going to turn this around real quick, and I'm going to say, do you have hope of glory? That's all we use the word glory. We don't need any definition of that word. We know what it means for military personnel. We know what it means for heroes. We want to know what it means for um, first responders. We know what it means for, in general life, what glory is all about. Honor and glory and, and, uh, and, and acknowledgement uh, in a very good way. We know what that means. But do you have hope of glory? Well, if you do, what is it? Your hope of glory is this. Christ in you. Not Christ around you. Not knowing about Christ, not having a superficial relationship and say, I know that guy. I've heard about him. We sing about him. Talk about him. No. The hope of glory is Christ in you. All right. If Christ is not in you, then you can be moved away from the hope of the gospel rather easily, if you have no sense of that. The next point, 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to make this easy and just refer to a couple of verses here. I want you to look at verse 4 and verse 8. Now this I say to you, says the Apostle Paul, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's the principle. People can cheat you, and the word cheat is disqualify. Here, Father, the God, God the Father, qualifies us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, but people can disqualify us through what? Everybody together. Philosophy. And may I add, philosophy that distorts the person of Christ and philosophy that distorts the work of Christ. Now, how do I illustrate the different, that what philosophy is? It's a big term. If you go to the dictionary, it's going to be one of the longest definitions you're going to find in the American dictionary, the word philosophy. But let me simply say that philosophy is our pursuit of knowledge and our pursuit of wisdom in the natural man, in the natural, without God's help, without any empirical research, without any scientific investigation, we develop philosophies about life, about death, and they're filled with speculation. And nations have sent these philosophies down the road and we've collected them for thousands of years and the average person doesn't realize that his thoughts apart from Christ and apart from God's Word are filled with philosophies from all over the world. Let me kind of illustrate it this way. If I'm an astronomer, I'm not a philosopher about my responsibility as an astronomer. Because an astronomer does empirical research, and an astronomer scientifically determines what's happening in the heavens. However, if I'm an astrologer, I'm a philosopher. Because I don't have any basis empirically to determine what I determined, Don and I were sitting at the Chinese restaurant the other night. You know those placemats at the Chinese restaurant have all of those animals around there. And, and just for the fun of it, Don looked at me and says, which one are you? <laughs> and I looked and I says, oh, okay, I won't tell you which one it was. And she looked at hers and she says, oh, he says, well, what kind of a person are you supposed to marry? And what kind of, you see what I mean? All of this speculation, all of this philosophy of life. And the Apostle Paul is really, really, really serious about this when he talks about philosophy because of the damage that it can do. Now Paul tries to, Paul, Paul, Paul clears it up a little bit for us. I don't know if you know this or not, but the philosophy of the New Testament uh, from the, the, the secular world of the people in the time of the New Testament, the philosophy about Christ was really, really askewed. Is He God? No. Is He man? No. Can He do miracles? No. But Paul, he heads 
us off at the pass right off the bat. And he kind of sandwiches us between two ends when he talks about the danger of philosophy in chapter 2. On the one end, in chapter 2, verse 2, he tells us that the mystery of God is all about both the Father and Christ. And he ends with verse 9 by saying, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that we come away from this. Now I realize this is technical stuff. And I realize this is the theology of the person of Christ here in this passage of Scripture. But the fact of the matter is that the reason why the Apostle Paul is able to get us so excited about this, pas- this book is because at the very beginning, he talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God in chapter 1, verse 15. He talks about the fact that Christ is preeminent over everything, not just our salvation. He's preeminent over creation. He's preeminent over everything in life. And he ought to be the most important figure for us in everything that we do. And he clears up for us who he is. That Jesus is God, fully God, and two, fully man, together in a human body. So, philosophy really messed that up. And the Christians of the first and second century scratched their heads many times figuring out, what are you trying to do with the person of Christ here? You say he isn't divine. You say... He isn't really human. You say he's all kinds of things to destroy the person of Christ and then to destroy the work of Christ. Well, he didn't die for sin. He's just a good person. He's just very talented in his ability to teach and and all of that kind of stuff. But listen, philosophy will move you away from the hope of the gospel. And then the next one, number, number, uh, number three. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one cheat you or disqualify you of your reward. And then he describes the ways that people can do it. He was even more intense in verse 16 when he said, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbath. And you recognize all of these as religious rituals. And you and I need to note that people can cheat us of our reward through legalism. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And he goes down through and he talks about some of the legalistic things that we do, some of the things that we feel we've got to do and we've got to force other people to do them. If you don't do this, you're not saved. If you don't do that, you're not saved. He says, listen, you died with Christ in verse 20 from the basic principles of the world. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. And all of the all of the legalism of your life, you're being moved away 
from the gospel. Now, the law of God, we obey, right? He's not talking about the law of God here. He's talking about all the ways that we come up with to make us feel good about the possibility of being right with God apart from being saved by Christ. That's what he's talking about. And there'll be no sense of any hope. There'll be no sense of any reward through legalism. And I love what he says in verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body in verse 23, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You can be as legalistic as you want, but it's not going to change the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't have the ability to do that. And so Paul gives to us a final thought here on how we can be moved away from the hope of the gospel. He says in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, and I want to look at verse 4 and 5 specifically, but he begins by saying, listen, if you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, verse 3, so that when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him, what? In glory. Amen. Now, is that a certain expectation that you have? Yes, it should be. And it's a certain expectation that I have as well. But he says, you know what can move you away from that certain expectation? He says, you can cheat yourself through carnality, through living like you did before you got saved. Getting saved and then nobody sees any change in your life and your thoughts are the same and your speech is the same and your deeds are the same and your, your life is hardly different than what it was before you were saved. He says you will cheat yourself through carnality. And notice what he says in verse 5. So your plan is to put to death your members which are on the earth. Put to death fornication. Put to death uncleanness. Put to death passion. Put to death evil desire. Put to death covetousness. And he goes on and on and on. In verse 8, he gives you another list. Put to death, put to death these, these emotions and these feelings and these uh, uh, attitudes. And Paul then says, put off the old man and put on the new man. And if you read, if you read a book of Ephesians, you just say, well, this is Paul saying the same thing here as he said there. I really struggle with trying to give you an overview of the book of Colossians today because this is one of the hardest books in the Bible. Ephesians, no doubt, is the hardest. But Colossians is not easy either. And I... So I'm going slow and a little bit deliberate and I'm trying to allow it to sink in. But, but this is all about the hope that you and I have in a God who has promised us a glorious eternity in so many ways. The houses we live in, the bodies we have will be glorified. No more pain, no more sorrow. I can hear again, I can see again, I can, I don't know if I have to worry about shoveling snow again. <laughs> but you see, 
This is, this is all the stuff that goes into a glorious eternity that God has promised. And I will be with thousands of other people who love the Lord. I won't have to worry about the criminal coming up to my home and trying to take my stuff. You see what I'm saying? And you say, Gary, why do you talk that way? You know, that just sounds so carnal by itself that we would have homes and lives. And that's what the Bible describes. My favorite Old Testament passage of Scripture about the, the, the new heaven and the new earth or the millennial reign of Christ is God will give us all a quiet and peaceful home. And I picture it by a nice stream of water in the forest somewhere. See? You say, well, that might not be. You, maybe you'll have to live in the city. So listen, it's just like the football player. You remember the football player. He says, I don't want to go to heaven because they don't have football in heaven. You ever hear that? They don't have football in heaven. And the wise pastor said, listen, for you to be happy in heaven, if, if there has to be, for you, if you have to play football in order to be happy in heaven, it'll be there. It'll be there. I don't know why we worry about the happiness part of it, the joy that we'll have. Well, there's a final one thought, and it's real, real clear and easy. In chapter 3, verse 18 through 25, you'll notice the, the relationships between the husbands and wives and children and fathers and employers and employees. You'll re remember all of that, right? Well, I just want to nail this all down in verse 24, that when God says that you obey Him and you do what He wants, you can look forward to this, verse 24. You will, everybody together, you probably can say it and read my, read, read my mind. You will receive the reward of the inheritance. You will receive it. Now the opposite is verse 25. Instead of being rewarded, you will be repaid for the wrong that you have done. And nobody wants to be there, do they? Nobody wants to be there. Now, you know that you and I can't buy our salvation. You and I know that the rewards that God gives to us is the rewards of our life of obedience once we receive Christ. You and I know that. You and I know that. And you and I know that those who don't receive Christ, there is no such thing as a reward on Judgment Day. Instead, it is a, let's figure out what the degree of punishment's going to be. You all know that, right? That's elementary. The scriptures teach that because God is fair and just and rewards us or punishes us according to our works. But listen, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8 is the previous book. And since it's a, it's a book that describes what we're reading here for the most part, I just want to give you a final thought here. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, rich or poor. You could, you could put a lot of words in there. You see. So where is your hope? Is it certain or is it uncertain? Boy, spend some time in the book of Colossians to figure that out, all right? And I hope all of us will come out on the other side saying, you know what? My hope is certain, without a doubt. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Sorry we went over a little bit, but uh, the pie will take care of that, I think. Huh? <laughs>
All right, let's close in prayer. But listen, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, read carefully everything that the book of Colossians says about who Jesus is and read carefully everything the book of Colossians says about what Christ has done for you. Don't allow philosophy. Don't allow uh, legalism. Don't allow carnality to move you away from the hope of the gospel. But rest in what God says about how to have hope. It's only in Christ. It's only in the free gift of eternal life by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless and guide us as we close this service. In Jesus' name, amen.